All right, let's pray before we open God's Word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us this inerrant holy word, that you have shined light in the darkness that we might know what it is that you desire from us and who you are. We do pray this morning, Father, that you would steep our minds with your truth you would fill our hearts with your truth, that you would stir our affections with your truth, that our will might be conformed to your truth. We pray that when we leave this place, that we would know that our sovereign, holy God, who is our Father in heaven, spoke to us as a personal being in these moments. That we leave this place having been changed by your word. Conform us to your likeness, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen. Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We've seen last week, and we've seen in the weeks leading up to this, in Matthew chapter 13, that when the kingdom of Christ comes into the world, that it brushes up against the kingdom of this world. And this morning we have a a prime example of it here in our text. This morning I want to look at this familiar account in the Gospels, and I want to observe four things from this passage. First is the fame of Jesus is not enough. Second, the danger of sin-inhibited conscience. Third, the destruction of a sin-seared conscience. And finally, an encouragement to faithfulness. So first, the fame of Jesus is not enough. 
Matthew tells us there in verse 1, if you look, he says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. As we mentioned last week, Jesus has been teaching with authority. He has been going around and He has been doing miracles and He is teaching with an authority that people have not seen before. He has an authority unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. And He is doing miracles like no one has ever seen. And so it doesn't take long. After Jesus has started His earthly ministry for word to begin to circulate about Him and the word of Jesus' fame, what He is doing and what He has said has come into the court of this tetrarch, Herod. Now, who was Herod? It can get a little confusing with all of the different politics of the New Testament world, so let's try and make this clear. There are two Herods that we meet in the New Testament. We met the first one in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. That is Herod the Great, the father And Herod the Great, you will remember that the Magi come and they know that the Christ has been born, this one that has been promised that would come into the world and be a Savior for His people. And they come by Herod the Great, and Herod the Great has them come to him and he says, look, when you find this Christ, when you find this Messiah, come back and report to me where He is. Because Herod the Great wanted to kill this baby Jesus that had been born into the world. The Herods were the ruling family in the area. Herod the Great had been given by the Roman government authority and control over this area. He had risen to power and the Romans liked him because they had to deal with what became kind of the perpetual Jewish problem where the Jews would revolt. And so they thought Herod was a good candidate to keep the Jews under wraps, because Herod was half Jew. But he was not only half Jewish, he was also part Edomite, half Edomite. But he and his family were wholly hedonistic. They were not God-fearing in any way. In fact, this family is a spiritual mess. They are arrogant, they are proud, they are powerful, and they are rich. And they are also cruel, as we will see in the murder of John the Baptist in this text, and as we saw with Herod the Great killing all of these babies in the city of Bethlehem. And their perversions in marriage are staggering, as we will also see. They are a very real picture in the Gospels of worldliness. When Herod the Great dies, he will divide his kingdom between his three living sons. And so you will have Herod Archelaus, who will be granted the region of Idumea, and the region of Samaria, and the region of Judea. And then the rest of the regions will be divided up between the other two sons. So you have Herod Philip, who was granted the territories in the north, and he will be granted a piece of land to the east of the Jordan River. And then you have, who is in our text, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is granted in his inheritance the land of Perea and the land of Galilee. And it's here that Jesus does most of his earthly ministry. 
And so it makes sense that as Jesus is doing His ministry in this region that Herod Antipas rules over, that Herod Antipas is beginning to hear about the fame of Jesus, who He is and what He is doing and what He is saying. The kingdom of Christ is brushing up against the kingdom of this world. And that's where the story begins. When Herod Antipas hears about the fame of Jesus, he comments in verse 2, he says this, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. He has a pang of conscience. You're going to have to bear with me this morning. That is a word that I can't say. I was uh, telling my kids this week when I was little, I had a stuttering S problem, and so I would go to speech therapy and we would sit there and do the Silly Sally sat sipping strawberry soda by the seashore. You know, that's what I would do. But some words, conscience is one of those that still trips me up. So you have to bear with me this morning because we're going to say it a lot. But he has a pang of conscience here. He comes to the conclusion that Jesus must be John reincarnated or that he's John resurrected from the grave. John was dead. Herod Antipas knows that. He knows that because he put John to death. You see, Jesus is not benign. When he begins to hear about the fame of Jesus and what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing, John or Herod has this pang of conscience. When people encounter Jesus, His teaching, His person, He affects. But the fame of Jesus is not enough. There must be repentance. There must be in response to hearing about Jesus' confession of sin and faith. And Herod responds with none of these. He never has. He has a sin-inhibited conscience, and that is awfully dangerous ground to be upon. This is our second point as Matthew takes this opportunity. John the Baptist is mentioned, and so Matthew is going to take us to the side as the reader, and he's going to fill in the details about what happened to John, and why is it that Herod Antipas has this pang of conscience within his person? And so he's going to tell us about John the Baptist's martyrdom. But even more so, he is going to tell us about the danger of a sin-inhibited conscience as we see in Herod. So let me give, again, a little bit of background here. Herod Antipas had fallen in love with his half-brother's wife. Herodias. And so Herodias will divorce her husband, Philip, and she will then marry Herod Antipas. That is why we're told in verse 3 that Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. And then Matthew gives us a little bit of insight. He says, quote, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Matthew is rightfully assessing and he's pointing out to us that this was not Herod Antipas' wife. This was Philip's wife. Here was a marriage that had violated God's law, His revealed law. 
He had taken his brother's wife. There was an all unlawful divorce. But even worse, there was an incestuous marriage. He had taken his brother's wife. This is a violation of Leviticus 18.16 and 20.21, which both state, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. But it gets even more convoluted than that. Not only was Herodias Herod's sister-in-law, she was also his niece the daughter of another half-brother. This is a family with an awful marriage record. As another example, Herodias' daughter, Salome, who we will meet in this text, who ends up dancing before Herod. She will marry Philip the Tetrarch, who is the half-brother to Herod Philip, her father. So that means that by that marriage, she became both the sister-in-law and the aunt of her mother. You can't make this stuff up. Sin was everywhere with this family. And such sin, John the Baptist has the courage to speak against. We're told in verse 4, John had been saying to him. Meaning John had been saying to Herod Antipas. And it's in the plural there. This isn't just a one-time event where he says this to Herod Antipas. He is continually and regularly saying to Herod Antipas. This is a refrain from this prophet who is out in the wilderness that is preaching into the courts of Galilee. This woman, it is not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful. Herod is confronted. And he's confronted and he's confronted, but there's no repentance. There's no confession of sin. There's no turning away. And here's the danger of a sin-inhibited conscience. He's a man of the world. A man of sin, and even when confronted and pained in his own conscience, he will not repent. Now part of that sin is that he fears his wife. No doubt Herodias was a woman you didn't want to cross. She clearly had a temper and a mean streak, as we shall see, and Herod appears to have cowered in the shadow of her. We see that in verse 3, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in, the, in prison for the sake of Herodias. It was for her sake. She didn't like John's preaching. Because John's preaching meddled with her life. And we don't tend to like preaching that meddles with our lives. And she let her husband know. And no doubt she played the card. Who, who is king here, Herod? Is it you or is it John? And if you're king, why would you allow someone to say this about me, your wife? So he arrests John out of fear. It's out of fear of his wife. There are many men who do many bad things out of fear of their wives. And neither serves her, nor himself, nor those around him. And how do we know that it's fear of her? Well, I'm making that assessment based upon parallel count in Mark 6. And there we have where Herod, we're told, heard him, meaning John, he heard him, 
He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And Mark tells us that Herod knew that John was a righteous and a holy man. And that's the reason that he keeps him in prison. And yet, he feared his wife more, so he arrested him. As one 19th century commentator said, like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought weak. We see that at his birthday party where he makes a vow and he's sorry for the vow that he's making, but he's made it in front of all of these guests and so he doesn't want to go back on it. And we see it here in that his wife demands that this man be arrested that has spoke against her. And though he gladly listens to him and he knows that he's a prophet, he arrests her because he's fearful of his wife. This is a weak man. A weak king with a sin-inhibited conscience. He's a spiritual mess. A small account shows us that he was a man who used his power abusively. He was an adulterer. He was a man of incest. He was a man of lust. He was a man of drunkenness and foolishness. His conscience is sin inhibited. And through January, our our faith focus and talking about our biblical identity and who we were created to be. And one of the things that the Bible makes clear is that you and I are a moral being. We can't help but be moral beings, all of us. We're moral beings making moral judgments in every situation we find ourselves. This is part of what separates us from beasts of the field and from animals. We have the capacity for a conscience. That doesn't mean that we all have a conscience. There are extraordinary circumstances and disabilities. But on the whole, people have a conscience. It's our faculty that tells us what is right and tells us what is wrong from within ourselves. Our, our, our personal conscience. It's a very black and white thing. Our conscience doesn't like gray at all. It is very stark. This is right. This is wrong. It's our moral judgment of ourselves and others and situations and thoughts and actions. It, it's fascinating. Isn't it? It, it's kind of a a third person in our heads that takes a, a step back and looks at the actions that we're doing and gives us a perspective on whether this is right or whether this is wrong. It's a fascinating thing. And it's a gift. And Herod has a sin-inhibited conscience. He has a conscience. It's there. It isn't gone. It didn't disappear, but it's severely inhibited by the sin that is part of his life. And that is absolutely dangerous. When his birthday comes, interestingly, the Jews didn't celebrate birthdays at this time. This was just what the Hellenists did. And so, it's another little subtle way that Matthew is letting us know that Herod is very distant from the people of God. He's celebrating his birthday, and at this party, which would have been filled with rich food and rich wine, his stepdaughter Herodias, her stepdaughter Salome, dances in front of him. And we can assume that this was a sensual 
dance. It becomes all the more offensive when you look down in verse 11 and the form of the noun that is there that is used to speak of her being a woman, a girl, is used to speak of someone that is relatively young. And we see evidence of that, I think, in the text, and that she immediately goes to her mother for advice after she is asked a question. But here we have this worldly man with a sin-inhibited conscience, and Matthew tells us that Herod was, quote, pleased with her. And you and I are to read into that pleased. And drunk with lust, he demonstrates foolishness. He promises with an oath that he will give her whatever she asks from him. It appears that he made this oath repeatedly or at least a number of times because it's in the plural in the ninth verse. That is, whatever you ask, daughter, no, really, you can have whatever you ask from me. Just ask and it is yours. Whatever. When I was a kid, I had a great-grandma. I only saw her about five times in my life, but she was one of my, my great heroes. One of the times that she came to visit us, uh, she was a small kid, maybe seven, eight years old, something like that, and she took my sister and my stepbrother and I to a department store, and she walked us in the front door, and she looked at us, and she said, have at it. You can get anything you want in the store. One of my highlights in childhood. Anything, anything you want, just pick it out. It's yours. It's all laid out there for you. Salome, the daughter of Herodias, she doesn't ask for a new pony or a tea set or even a four-poster bed. She runs to her mother for advice, and her mother doesn't hesitate. Her wrath, her anger, her bitterness are palpable in the text. In that moment, when her daughter could be given anything, she takes from her daughter and she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Whatever you want, Salome, says a lust-filled stepfather, and the angry mother wants her appetite satiated. Give his head to me. Herod is a man steeped in sin. A sin-inhibited conscience. He is proud. He is filled with fear of man. He is abusive in power. He is adulterous. He is lustful. He is foolish. And yet, we also see in this passage and in Mark 6 that he has a conscience. Though it's clouded and though at times it's uninformed or ignored, it was active. When he hears of Jesus and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying, he immediately thinks, that's John the Baptist. The one that I killed. He must be back from the dead to haunt me. Now there's some superstition in that. But it's a pang of conscience. He's being pricked. His conscience is firing. But he shoves it down. And that's the danger. His sin-inhibited conscience doesn't stop him from damaging himself and everyone around him. 
our sin. Our sin never stays in its lane. It always goes into the next lane. It never just affects our life. It always swerves into other lanes. It hurts others. The man who is inebriated and intoxicated and has drank too much and he's getting in his car and he's talking to himself and saying, I can make it home. I've done this before. He thinks even if I don't make it home, I don't really care because this is my life and I don't really care if I die tonight. But the problem is that there's a 17-year-old single female that is coming home from work in the lane that is on the opposite side of the road. There's a father with three young kids in the back seat that's coming from a visit to grandma's house that is in the lane next to him. Our sin never just stays in its lane. It always crosses over. It always swerves into other lanes. Sin isn't neat. It isn't polite. It doesn't like boundaries. It's never content with only impacting a small domain. It wants dominion over everything. We see this here. Herod's sin of adultery and incest was left unchecked. And no doubt, from that, fear of man could take hold and lust continued to grow. And as that fear of man and lust continue to grow, he is tantalized at his birthday party, and that lust and fear of man leads to foolishness, and that foolishness leads to murder. And John is affected. And John's disciples are affected. And the people who finally had a prophet after 400 years of silence are affected. Jesus is affected. Herod's sin didn't just stay in Herod's lane. Sin never does. He was a man with a conscience. And he ignored it. Don't ignore your conscience. A sin-inhibited conscience is a dangerous agent within. It's like, a, it's like a spy who is a double agent. He doesn't serve the purposes for which he is there and actually works against the very thing that he's there for. Don't ignore your conscience when you're pricked. There are four main reasons I think we ignore what we know to be right. Just very quickly. First, the fear of man. We don't want others to be upset with us, to think ill of us, to not like us. We see that here with Herod, with his wife. He's fearful of her. We see that with all of his guests at his birthday party. He is fearful of them. Second is fear of loss. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to fail. We don't want to lose anything. And so we disobey our conscience out of fear of losing something. Third, John Anderson taught me this. He's much cooler than I am. 
but FOMO. Fear of missing out. What if I miss something that is fun? Something that's entertaining, something that's epic. And usually, it's an experience, an experience with sin. Fourth, fear of losing control. That moment that our conscience says, don't do this or do this, we don't like it. Even though that thought comes from a voice that's within us, it's something that rubs against our desires. And we live in an age where it is all about being authentic to our true self. Not what your conscience tells you, but what your desires tell you. But that's simply idolatry. And that's self-worship. One of the greatest signs of growth in our spiritual life is not the absence of sin. It's rather when we are pricked in conscience by the fact that we have committed a sin or are in sin. That we respond according to our conscience and repent and confess. That is one of the greatest signs of your godliness, of your growth in Christ. Having said that, there are those, there are some of you in this room, you have too tender of a conscience, that you're too introspective, you're always looking within and you're always beating yourself up and you got yourself tied up in knots and you can't ever rest and you can't ever enjoy the peace or the love or the grace of Christ. That's not Herod's problem. He had a sin-inhibited conscience. Our third and much shorter point, we must observe here the destruction of a sin-seared conscience. Herodias is the prime example of this. She has a sin-seared conscience. And Paul uses that term, sin-seared, in 1 Timothy 4.12. And there he's speaking about teachers in the church that are liars and their conscience is seared. The NIV translates that phrase as, quote, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Especially like how the New Living Translation translates the heart of what Paul was trying to get at there, where they translated as, quote, their consciences are dead. The imagery is of a, a brand that has been taken from the fire, like a blacksmith would have, some of our blacksmiths in the room. And it's from that glowing hot fire and you take that brand and you put it up against the skin and it is so hot and it so damages the nerve endings there on the skin that there's no longer feeling in that place. That's what John Wesley called drunkenness of soul, a fatal numbness of spirit. Herodias has such a sin-seared conscience. Maybe it's due to her lust, maybe her adultery, or maybe her bitterness, or maybe a combination of all three, but her conscience seems absolutely dead. It's a birthday party. It's festive. And when her daughter asks what she requests for after her husband has just lusted over her daughter, she asks, for murder. 
just lusted over her daughter. A good conscience would have caused her to rebuke her husband. A good mother would have said, I'm not taking that from you. You should ask for this for yourself. But no, she says, bring me his head. This is destruction that can be caused when our hearts become callous, as Paul will say in another text. When sin has for so long been entertained that though we are confronted, though we are rebuked, that it doesn't even matter. This is the danger of entertaining sin. Is that it can eventually build up and just sear the conscience. John the Baptist is preaching repentance to her. He is holding out salvation to her. He is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. He is saying, look, you are trapped in darkness and there is light. You are dead and there is life. He is holding it out to her. All she has to do is just grab it. But she doesn't. Because her conscience is so seared with sin. She wants nothing to do with it. The early church father, Jerome, reported about Herodias. Though there's no corollary accounts of this anywhere else. But Jerome lived in the what, 4th century, 5th century. He writes about this moment when John the Baptist's head is brought in on a platter. And he says that Herodias did the same thing that famously Fulvia, the wife of Antony, did when Cicero's head was brought in on a plate before them. And there may be some truth to this because you can even see in this text and Josephus, the Jewish historian, will point out things as well as that Herod and Herodias were trying to act like they were great kings great king and a great queen, like the emperors. It said that when Cicero's head was brought in, and Jerome reports that when John the Baptist's head was brought in, that she did the same thing, Rhodius, as Fulvia, and that she spit upon the head, and then she pulled out the tongue, and she took a hairpin from her hair, and she stabbed the tongue into the platter. Is it true? I don't know. But it would be fitting with her character. She has a sin-seared conscience. And nothing is beyond her. And destruction is the result. It's the destruction of others. But worst of all, it's the destruction of herself. Finally, in our much... More encouraging note, we have the faithfulness of John the Baptist. Here's a man of whom, truly, we could say with the writer of Hebrews, the world was not worthy. It's no small thing to, to stand up and to preach and to confront a, a king and his wife, especially when you know how ruthless that king has been and how awful his wife is she is maybe the worst woman in the scriptures besides Jezebel. And yet John courageously speaks. 
He doesn't hesitate. He says, it's not lawful for you to have her. According to whom? Herod is king of this land. According to whom, John? We should all tremble to speak into somebody else's personal life, and we should be slow to do so. But John does. In fact, it's, I think, much easier to speak into other people's lives than to examine our own lives and speak into them. So how does John speak so boldly here? How could he do that? Because he knew God's Word. And God's Word was explicitly clear. In Leviticus 18, John could say with confidence, it is not lawful for you to have her. It was the explicit teaching of Scripture. When we are standing upon the explicit teaching of Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence, can deduce that this is what the Scriptures are teaching, then we can say it with boldness and absolute confidence. This wasn't a gray area. This wasn't a matter of best practice. This wasn't a matter of conscience where we can differ. And we can differ because our consciences aren't always right. But this was explicit law. This is one of the reasons that you and I need to steep our minds in the Word of God. Because as I come to understand the Word of God more fully, I'm afforded the ability to more clearly understand what should govern my conscience. What laws to erect in my mind that I should not do this and what freedoms I should enjoy in Christ. I can do that. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The more my mind is filled with the Word of God, the more it is shaped by the will of God, and the more I am transformed into God's likeness. To fill it with the Word of God. Holy Spirit works in the believer's life by His Word, and that is what should inform our conscience. We must obey God rather than man, as the Apostle said. We must obey God rather than man, even if I'm the man. You see, here's the trick, isn't it? Your conscience is not your God. My conscience is not your God. God is your God. And He governs your conscience by His Word. Martin Luther famously said when standing before that diet in the face of death, he said, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. It'd be true of all of us as it was true for John. As it was true for Martin. This is a different sermon, but we also must be clear that we don't seek to be anyone else's conscience. We teach 
towards things. We inform others about things. We seek to influence consciences, but we cannot control. And we must not dictate to other people's consciences. Lord is Lord of the conscience. Paul has a lot to say about that in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. I find 1 Corinthians 18 especially fascinating. You have people that are eating food that has been sacrificed to idols in the marketplace. You have other people that cannot seem to eat that food that has been sacrificed to idols in the marketplace. They're bound by their conscience. They see that as some kind of participation in that worship. And what's fascinating is that Paul was very clear. Look, you're not participating in the worship by eating that meat. It's fine to eat the meat. But he tells them that, look, if you violate your conscience, you've sinned. If your conscience says to you, I can't eat that meat, and then you eat that meat, then you've sinned. And what's even more fascinating is Paul is convinced it isn't sin to eat the meat. But he doesn't bring his apostolic authority to bear upon them. He simply teaches them and then he leaves it to their conscience. Maybe a little closer to home. I think the scriptures are very clear. You can drink alcohol. And some of you do. Some of you by conviction don't. I stopped drinking a number of years ago. You're free to drink alcohol. I would maintain that till my death with every one of you. I want every one of you to believe that you can drink alcohol. Because I think the Scriptures are clear that you can. But some of you might be in the place where you say, but I don't want to drink alcohol and don't think I should because it is often the trappings of worldliness. It destroys my witness to others. It is a gateway to all kinds of other things. I find it to be a slippery slope. And so if you were to drink alcohol, it would be sin for you because you would be violating your conscience. The Lord is Lord of the conscience. Was John required to preach this message to Herod? Well, Yes and no. I think we can say no in one very real sense. The disciples didn't preach this message to Herod, and they weren't in sin. Herod didn't pre- or Jesus didn't preach this message to Herod, and he wasn't in sin. In the Old Testament, you will have Ezra and Nehemiah who never speak to the government, and you'll have Isaiah and Jeremiah who do. You'll have Moses who declares to Pharaoh, and you'll have Joseph who doesn't. But in another very real sense, we have to say that, yes, John had to. Because it must have been that his conscience, by God, told him he was to speak to this man. He was convinced by what he saw in the Word and by the work of the Holy Spirit in him that he had to speak to this man. Say, but what a waste, John. You're only 30 years old. You're just starting your ministry. He felt like he had to. 
We're trying to wrestle through this just this summer. Went on a couple of trips to China. And on both trips, I was hit with the same questions. There's a pastor that some of you are familiar with that had become very outspoken against the Chinese government. Let's do this, though, first. Let's set aside whether it's appropriate for a pastor in the pulpit to speak to the government. Okay? Let's just set that aside. I think I've been clear about my own conscience in that regard over the last weeks and months. But let's just set that aside. That's not the issue here. Here you have this man who is a preacher in China that became very outspoken against the communist government. Because of that, you know, he was arrested and you saw a number of weeks ago that he was sentenced to years upon years in prison. I was sitting with different brothers and sisters in China and a number of them were very cynical about what this man had done. They said since he did that, The Chinese government has been cracking down on the Christian church. And in their minds, he was acting very foolishly and unwisely, and they were all suffering as a result. And they'd asked me, was he right in what he was doing, or are we right? Now here's what's fascinating. They believed that they should be quiet. And they argued from the Scriptures, we should live peaceably with all people. We're to honor the emperor. We're to honor those in authority. There wasn't fear in these brothers and sisters. They were meeting with me behind closed doors. At any time, those doors could have been opened and they would have been arrested and taken off to jail themselves. It wasn't for fear. It was because by their conscience, they believed by the Scriptures that they shouldn't poke the government in the eye at this time. But was the preacher wrong that was in the other part of China? I don't think he was wrong. He could very easily make the case and say, look, the time has come. The church is to have a prophetic voice to this darkened world. And the communist government is cracking down on churches and shutting down churches. And now is the time to speak. We need to be bold and not ashamed of the gospel. And we need to declare to them. That's what his conscience told him, I trust. As he met with the Lord in prayer and pouring over the word. Could it be? Could it be that they're both right? That by God's good providence, He's convicting the conscience of the people here to be peaceable. And He's convicting the conscience here to speak out against the government. They're all just seeking to be faithful to their Savior. Just seeking to be faithful. And in the end, that is what we all desire is just to be faithful for the sake of Christ. There are believers around the world today who are being martyred for the faith because they will be faithful to Christ. And they won't waver from it. There are people, Christians in our country today who are losing their reputations, they're losing their jobs, 
They're losing their positions in society because they are committed to remaining faithful to Christ. Convicted by their conscience, by the Word of God. And they are going to stand upon that Word and remain faithful to their Savior no matter the cost. to pray for one another often. Because here's the problem, isn't it? It isn't easy. This isn't easy. We need to pray for one another. We need to pray for the persecuted church. We need to pray for our pastors and preachers and teachers. We need to pray for our leaders often. John dies at the age of 30 for having remained faithful. He was going to stand upon the Word of God, whatever it cost him. Many have said in history, it is better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than a head like Herod's and keep it. And here's the great promise for those who are Christ's. I think Matthew recenters us at the end of this text by taking us back to Jesus. And I think it's a subtle reminder for us. It's a reminder that King Herod's word was not the last verdict on John's life. King Jesus's was and is the last word on John's life. And that is the verdict that matters. We want to hear on that last day to us personally, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that means standing upon His Word and allowing our conscience to be dominated by it, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word, for how lost we would be apart from what you have revealed to us. And oh, Father, we pray that where there is sin in our hearts and our lives, that you would rebuke us and that you would lead us in repentance. We pray that we would be quick to confess, that we would be quick to turn in the other direction to you, that we might not have sin-seared consciences that no longer respond in any way to the truth of your word. We pray that you would give us boldness to stand upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that we would believe that the gospel is unto salvation for all who believe. We would not shrink away in cowardice, but that we would remain resolute in our Savior who holds us and keeps us. That we would willingly bear our cross in this world with our eyes fixed on glory, and that we would seek to give you glory with all of our lives and all of our strength. 
truly you are worthy of all that we can offer. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.